Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast of Principia Journal of Classical Education. The journal is supported by Baylor University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, Hillsdale College, the University of Dallas, and the Institute for Classical Education. I'm Brian Williams, General Editor of Principia and Dean of the Templeton Honors College and the College of Arts and Humanities at Eastern University. Principia Podcast is an informal version of the journal where I converse with authors of Principia articles and other scholars connected to contemporary classical education and where I muse about key moments, educators, texts, and ideas in the long history. Now, in my first podcast, I was ruminating about the long tradition of classical liberal arts education and how contemporary classical education differs from classics. And let me be clear again, classic Greek and Roman language and literature and history have always been an important part of the classical tradition of education, but are not the sum of it. Because as we explored in the first episode, the tradition didn't stop developing in late antiquity only to be rediscovered in 1980s America. Instead, it's an enduring tradition that has grown and changed and developed even if at times it's been marginalized from the popular society or its threads have slightly unraveled. So I'm not ready to let go of the idea of tradition just yet. And I want to spend another episode uh, reflecting on tradition and especially picking up some of the great metaphors that uh, have been given to us to think about tradition. We often live into images and metaphors in our minds, and they help us get a purchase on ideas that are sometimes a little more abstract. So there have been a, a lot of scholarly work done on the concept of tradition, especially in the 20th century. That's probably because in late modernity, people became much more aware of the multiple intellectual, moral, religious, and cultural traditions that exist. And so thinkers set about reflecting on what it means to be part of any one of them. All right, when your tradition is the only one you know, you don't realize it's a distinct tradition or different in any way. To you, it's just the way things are. So in the past, say, 150 years, scholars have reflected on the nature of tradition itself, as well as on the traditioned domains of human life. One of the things they've given us are some great images or metaphors for thinking about tradition and which are all useful for framing uh, this tradition of classical education. Now, you may have heard of this one. Tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. It's a really great line. Uh, it's often attributed to the musician Gustav Mahler, but it's also been attributed to Thomas More, Benjamin Franklin, and Pope John Twenty-Third. Uh, it seems that the earliest version of it actually originated with a uh, French philosopher and politician Jean Jaurès. In a speech in 1910, Jaurès was criticizing politicians who supported what we might think of as the letter of institutions and the letter of the law rather than the spirit. In this 1910 speech, Jaurès says this, The flame in the hearth of so many human generations has not burned and flickered in vain. But we who do not stand still, who fight for a new ideal, we are the true heirs of the hearth of our ancestors. We took their flame from it. You only kept the ashes. Now, 
the more pithy version, tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire, seems to have grown from this original, but it hardly matters who said it because it's such an evocative image of someone preserving and protecting fire or glowing embers so that they can provide light and heat for others when they need it. If you've ever been on a backwoods camping trip, you know how important it is to preserve fire, to nurse those coals and to be able to stoke it into a roaring fire. Ashes, in Jaurès' analogy, may be remnants of something grand, but they can no longer provide the light and heat that people need. You may also know uh, another saying, uh, another great metaphor from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, There's his famous quip that tradition is democracy extended through time, which he calls famously the democracy of the dead. That democracy which gives votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. Believing, of course, that they are no less intelligent, no less sophisticated, no less insightful than we are. It's a, it's a practice that helps us overcome uh, what's often called our chronological snobbery, or what the great French historian of education, H.I. Moreau, called our naive self-sufficiency. See, tradition for Chesterton requires seeing the dead as still living, still speaking through their texts, possessing an authority or at least a voice that we should vivify and allow to speak as we grapple with enduring human questions. Often, usually, the same questions they were grappling with. Just because they lived and died before us doesn't diminish their insight or their wisdom or their thoughtfulness, or their ability to contribute to our own understanding of what it is we're trying to do as humans. It may mean some of the particulars are not the same, but because they were enduring, they were addressing enduring human conditions and questions, we'd be foolish, especially as a democratic people, not to enfranchise them. Uh, I, I love uh, how Yuroslav Pelikan in his book on tradition, how he describes Chesterton, He says, and if you know Chesterton, this will make sense. He says, Chesterton is an English writer who knew how to be serious without becoming solemn and clever without becoming silly. I love that. Now, in Pelican's own book called The Vindication of Tradition, he offers actually quite a few uh, images. But one in particular, I find a really useful image for considering how we might relate to or approach tradition, our own in this liberal arts tradition, or really any tradition. He says that we can approach tradition in one of three ways. We can do so either as infants, adolescents, or mature adults, right? We can think about how infants adolescents or mature adults relate to their parents and we can adopt the same kinds of postures towards tradition. You could probably see where this is going, right? The first approach to tradition, its authors and its practices, relates to tradition like an infant relates to its parents, believing them all wise, all powerful, and literally impeccable. This posture uh, kind of accepts everything in the tradition or its authors and practitioners as an article of faith. On the other hand, the adolescent approach to tradition 
resembles what happens when the teenager, perhaps your teenager, discovers that his or her parents are actually fallible, actually do make mistakes, are indeed, shockingly, normal human beings. But then the teenager comes to treat them with a certain amount of disdain or disrespect, practicing a hermeneutic of suspicion towards everything they say or they everything they do, canceling out their words and refusing to hear their wisdom. Now, the adolescent, of course, then takes a few things he's learned and does his own thing, which usually means doing the things his peers and popular culture tell him he should do. Now, I have a five-year-old and a 14-year-old, and I see these two approaches on a daily basis. My five-year-old daughter thinking that at least her mother can do no wrong, and my 14-year-old son thinking that at least his father can do no right. And I'm sure we could, without too much reflection, find examples of both the infantile and the juvenile relation towards traditions in our own culture, especially when it comes to traditions of education, religion, and moral formation. Now, Pelican, of course, counsels a third way, that of mature charity, sincere gratitude, and prudent judgment. You know, the way an adult child relates to their own parents. He says in his text that tradition must be the object of thought, no less than the object of faith. So we can accept a tradition. We can appreciate it. We can love it. We can learn from it. While we also sometimes wrestle with it or disagree with certain aspects of it or use some of the elements of the tradition to do things a slightly different way, much again like many of us have done with our own parents. So while we can't participate in a tradition as an object of faith, resting in it and trusting it like we trust accumulated practical wisdom, we also engage it, in Pelican's words, as an object of thought, with a discriminating eye, discerning wheat from chaff. As we value its wisdom, we also work to make it more integrated consistent with itself, and whole. And while we work to incorporate into it truths arrived at through other ways or means and other traditions, and while we adapt it to new contexts, questions, and challenges. Besides my five-year-old and my 14-year-old, I also have an 18-year-old daughter, and I see her doing just this. She knows her parents are all too human, but there's a respect and appreciation even while she won't choose to make all the same decisions that we made. Pelican gives us a, a great line that resembles Jare's image of fire and ashes, and you may have heard this. Yaroslav Pelican also writes, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Let me say that again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, while traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. He goes on to say, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. If the children analogy is a parable, here's the clear teaching from him. He writes, tradition lives in conversation with the past. Sounds like Chesterton. While remembering where we are and when we are, and that it is we who have to decide. Traditionalism supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time, so that all that is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at the supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition. Now, if you listen to my first 
episode, it, it may have been that supposedly unanimous testimony that I was originally trying to find when I first encountered classical education. Where is the standard blueprint that everyone has been replicating for hundreds and hundreds of years? That's what I was looking for. But it's not there. If you know the tradition of classical liberal arts education and the thinkers, poets, and authors that populate it, you'll know that even if they agree on a great on a set of great questions that humans should ask themselves, they often disagree about how to answer them. And if they agree on a set of ends to pursue, which they largely do, they're likely to differ on many of the ways to get there. And to my point in the last episode, again, even though the Greeks, the Romans, and the North African Christians handed on a great wealth of literature, philosophy, theology, liberal arts, and the idea and vision of classical education that pursues multidimensional human flourishing rather than vocational training, successive generations of educators still had to discern what to practice, how to do it, what to pass on, of all that they accepted, and what to change modify, or enlarge based on when they were and who they were. Pelican offers yet another useful metaphor when he writes, like Chesterton, that in a living tradition, we enter a conversation with the dead rather than merely play a recording of them or merely sing along with them or merely recite their words and perform their, their actions just because they did. In, the, in this, we often refer to entering a great conversation, but really we have to foster that conversation because the dead don't speak directly to us and don't directly answer our questions. See, in any tradition, uh, especially a religious, philosophical, political, or educational tradition, the depth of our dialogue with those who handed on the tradition depends in large part on the depth of our, our understanding of them. So the responsibility falls to us to vivify them, to make, the, to make their speech and acts live. It's we who have to present them back to ourselves as well as we are able, you know, in Martin Buber's great concept as a thou rather than an it, so that we encounter them in an I-thou rather than an I-it relationship. Again, that we dignify them as equally intelligent as we are, and in many cases more intelligent than we are, at least more intelligent than I am. And that we don't too quickly prejudge them from the standpoint of chronological, religious, pedagogical, or cultural superiority. There's a good book on conversation by Theodore Zeldin uh, that several of us in the Honors College here love. And he's got a line in there that I sometimes think about when I think about entering this great conversation uh, with our intellectual and pedagogical forebears. Zeldin writes this. He says, uh, the kind of conversation I'm interested in is one which you start with a willingness to emerge a slightly different person. It is always an experiment whose results are never guaranteed. It involves risk. It's an adventure in which we agree to cook the world together and make it taste less bitter. I love that. Of course, he's thinking between two living people, but I think the same can be said for a vivified conversation with authors, artists, poets, and educators who came before us. Now, Pelican relies on other thinkers, uh, especially the 19th century theologian, churchman, and classical educator, John Henry Newman. Uh, one of my own favorites and one of the subjects of my doctoral dissertation at the University of Oxford. And Newman was the author of The Idea of a University. And folks like Pelican, 
German philosopher Joseph Pieper and the American Alistair McIntyre cite Newman as one of, if not the chief source of their own thinking on education, or sorry, on tradition, especially in his work, an essay on the development of Christian doctrine and his book, The Arians of the Fourth Century. Now, Newman's works are serious and significant, and I won't pretend to summarize them here. But in the essay on the development of doctrine, Newman muses about tradition, muses about the handing on and the successive embodiment of what he calls a real idea or a living idea that develops over time. Now, his specific focus in that book is the development of Christian doctrine in the church, but he reflects just really more generally on any kind of tradition, but on the, the, this core, what he calls real idea or living idea that animates the tradition, that makes it a consistent and coherent thing, but that also develops. So in that work, like a lot of these other authors, he offers several compelling metaphors for thinking about tradition that help us, again, frame the tradition that we're a part of. Oh, here's one of his more famous ones. And it's comparing traditions to springs and streams and rivers. This is Newman. He says, it is indeed sometimes said that the stream is clearest near the spring. Whatever use may fairly be made of this image, it does not apply to the history of a philosophy or belief, which on the contrary is made more equable and purer and stronger when its bed has become deep and broad and full. Its beginnings are no measure of its capabilities, nor of its scope. That's really fascinating. Sometimes we do think that the water or the stream is going to be purer or clearer near the source, near the spring. Newman says, well, maybe, but yes and no, actually, because that spring is a small thing. It's a small beginning, and that stream, as it as it channels through the countryside it's going to get deeper and it's going to get wa- it's going to get wider i'm thinking of the river thames uh here in england and if you find the headwaters of it the spring of it and then go to london and see it flowing through the city it's a bigger more rambunctious thing in london than uh, at its very at its source so Newman just here's a, offers this other metaphor. He says, you know, over time, a real living idea like that of liberal education, of which Newman was a vociferous champion, it, over time it faces new controversies and challenges. It sees parties rise and fall, and it develops in new and surprising ways. But in doing so, it becomes fuller. It becomes more complete, more refined, more robust and powerful than when the idea first emerge out of the ground, or when the practice first began for this tradition, of course, in 5th century BC Athens with Isocrates and Plato. Now, those are quite some headwaters. I give you that. I grant you that. But the tradition has gone on to develop and grow and expand and deepen uh, in really interesting ways. And so another metaphor to think about tradition. Now, though he comes last in this line, Alistair McIntyre picks up on all three of these thinkers, well, actually all of these thinkers, including Joseph Pieper, and like them, he offers a metaphor. In his uh, description, he describes traditions as like 
crafts, like a craftsman carrying on a, a particular craft over generations through embodied practices and institutions passed on from one craftsman or one guild to another in ways that allow the craft to endure, but also to be put to different uses in different conditions and to be uh, used on different materials and to incorporate different skills or new skills while still remaining the same craft. Now, let me throw, if I can, my own imperfect analogy into this mix. And like all analogies, all of these analogies are inadequate to some degree. If you push them all to their logical conclusion, you think, well, no, it's not like that. But they're all meant to capture some aspect, I suppose, of what it uh, means to live in and practice a tradition. So I sometimes think about traditions like cities or towns that begin small, grow, and change while still maintaining some recognizable continuity with the past, right? The Joplin, Missouri that I grew up in is markedly different from the place the Reverend Joplin settled in 1840 or the place near where George Washington Carver was born in around 1846, where lead and zinc were discovered in 1870, where Langston Hughes was born in 1902, where Bonnie and Clyde had a shootout in 1933, Mickey Mantle played local baseball in 1950, and where I was born in 1971, and where in 2011, a mile-wide EF5 tornado landed for 45 minutes. It's different. But it's all still Joplin, right? Even though the center of town has shifted from Murphy Boulevard to Main Street to Range Line, it's all still the same city. It's developed. It's grown. Not always in good ways, that's true, uh, but often in good ways. And clearly to those outside the city limits, it's Joplin. It's always Joplin. It's all Joplin, even though it's changed dramatically within it. And living in a tradition is a bit like that, where you have continuity and change. So... Tradition is something handed on, received, and handed down. It's not, though, like an heirloom, right? It's not like my great-grandmother's shaker-style desk that I'm sitting at right now, which I received as a child, have used ever since, and ideally, unless I destroy it somehow, I'd love to pass it on to one of my children. It really hasn't changed. It's got a few extra nicks out of it, a few coffee stains absorbed into it, But for the most part, it hasn't changed at all and isn't likely to change for another 200 years. But this tradition of classical ed isn't quite like that. It is, like Newman describes, a living idea around which are organized an enduring set of questions, ideas, practices, dispositions, and relations. So to enter this tradition uh, is not to be handed an instruction manual, but to enter a new culture, learn a new language, to adopt new loves. It's like moving to a new country and adapting oneself to a new culture uh, if you haven't grown up in it. I recently spoke to a new cohort of classical teachers at True North School in Miami, Florida. I love what they're doing down there. And I challenged them that when they signed their name on their new contracts, they not only agreed to teach biology or rhetoric or reading three times a week, manage the lunchroom on Tuesdays and Thursdays and organize the PTO meeting, But they also accepted the responsibility to learn this tradition, to become a part of it, to practice it, to adapt themselves to it, to apprentice others to it, and to pass it on as a deep good 
and a human endowment worth preserving, protecting, and promoting. It's the fire, not the ashes. It's the democracy of the dead. It's something we approach with gratitude like mature adults. It's not a recording, but a mature conversation. It's a flowing and deepening stream. It's an embodied craft, a living language, and a place to call home. Now, my next podcast will explore one of the core aspects of classical education that has endured and deepened over the generations, namely the multidimensional ends of education that connect paideia to eudaimonia. Because as traditions develop and change, and as they pass through time and place, to remain a recognizable tradition, they do retain some core defining features. A consistent set of ideas, commitments, beliefs, and questions that are sustained by coherent practices and institutions. You know, to use Thomas Aquinas' language, we might think here of the distinction between the essences and the accidents of classical education. The enduring essences and the historically contingent accidents that represent different ways of embodying, practicing, or manifesting those essences depending on the time, place, the pressures, and the people involved. So we're going to pick up one of those in the next podcast. Now, until then, let me leave you with a few questions. What other metaphors have helped you think about tradition? Which of these metaphors that I was reflecting on today do you find the most useful? What are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? And what do you consider the essences and the accidents of classical education? That is, what do you think are the enduring elements of classical education that are essential to it? What are the contingent elements uh, owing to the changing circumstances of time, place, and people? Now, if you're interested in reading more about tradition, uh, you can check out John Henry Newman's An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine and the thinkers and books that that book influenced. There's Joseph Pieper's Tradition, Concept and Claim, Yaroslav Pelikan's The Vindication of Tradition, and Alistair McIntyre in a host of works, but perhaps most importantly, three rival versions of moral inquiry, encyclopedia, genealogy, and tradition. And with that, folks, I will sign off and let you get on with pursuing the true, good, beautiful, holy, healthy, and useful wherever you are. You've been listening to Dr. Brian A. Williams, and this has been the Precipia Journal Podcast.